Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Samuel chapter 11 will be focused on 6 through the end of the chapter, but I'm going to pick it up with verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with them and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from, <clears throat> from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself, From her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house in a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there, would, there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises... And he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot him from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray as we study it, as we think and meditate on this passage, that you would put conviction in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Okay, so a bit of review from last time. We... We've read this passage so many times that we can quickly read over it and we lose sight of some of the details that are here. Um, but we, <clears throat> we learned last time that David's sins were, were many in this passage, not merely just that sin of staying back at Jerusalem when he should have been more involved. He... Um, he gazed at the woman um, from his rooftop and he should have at that point stifled his lust and yet he became inquisitive rather than shutting down his heart. He became inquisitive and sent messengers and wanted to know who it was and, and, um, and brought brought Bathsheba back uh, to his home and he committed adultery with her. And then at the end of it, we learned that she uh, conceived and she tells David that, that she's pregnant. And so that's where things pick up in verse 6. He's just, David has just learned that, um, that he has... Uh, trouble. He has a crisis going on. Bathsheba is pregnant. And so, what does David do? He turns to Joab. What do we know about Joab? What do we know about Joab? What's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say Joab? He's a murderer, right? Killed his own brother, killed in battle. I think we can say that. But this is the man that David turns to. And this is the kind of man that you and I would turn to if we wanted to cover up one of our sins. And what... what 
David does, first of all, is sends to Joab and says, bring Uriah back. He's got a plan. Bring him back. He'll, he'll go in to be with his wife, and everyone will assume then that the child that's in Bathsheba's womb is Uriah's. Right? So he retrieves Uriah. He talks with Uriah regarding Joab and the war. Right? Talks to him about what he's been doing and what's been going on in the kingdom and how's, how's the battle going and how's your commander, how's Joab. And then he commands him to go to his home and wash his feet, which means to stay, right? To, to enter in and to stay. And then sends a gift after he leaves. Sends a gift to him. What do you think that gift is? We have no idea, but I think it was probably something to, to give to his wife to uh, spice up the night, right? It could have been. But he sends a gift to him, and, you know, things are going well, and Uriah, Uriah must be wondering, okay, why have I, one of the 30, been pulled back from the front line of battle? I'm here. There are any countless number of messengers that David could have spoken to, and constant communication from, from the battle back to him, and yet Uriah is the one that he asks about what's going on the front line. And so, um, so Uriah has got to be thinking that this is quite strange. And then David says, go down to your house, wash your feet. He went out of the king's house. Present came after him, but Uriah did what? He didn't go home. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. So with the other men engaged in battle off the, off the field for a time, he goes and sleeps with those men. And didn't go down to his house. Now remember who Uriah is. Where is he from? He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Hittite. He's a Gentile, this man. But he's one of David's 30. We could, um, we could turn forward to 2 Samuel 23 and read the list of those men. One of David's 30, one of the high-ranking men. He doesn't go home, but rather slept at the door of the king's house with other servants. And we've got to keep in mind that he is a converted Gentile, right? He's, he's obviously converted. He's serving in the king's army. He's, he's um, calling on the name of the Lord. And, and so he doesn't, he doesn't do what David asks of him. He disregards the command of the king if we can take that as a command rather than merely a suggestion, but what, what king suggests things, right? King David told him to go down to your house and wash your feet. He doesn't. He disregards that command. David finds out and speaks to Uriah again. Why, why didn't you go home? Um, and his answer in verse 11 is powerful, right? Uriah says to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. Armies 
are sleeping in open fields, shall I go home and eat and drink and lie with my wife? It seems strange to me that he would mention lying with his wife. It seems like he has some knowledge of what's going on here. But this is so obscure and so strange that he would be pulled back from the lines. And um, perhaps he has been given word that his wife is pregnant as well. But then these final words in what he says to David, look at that. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Right? I mean, is that, that almost sounds like a veiled threat. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Um, at least it seems like a veiled rebuke. Like he's rebuking him. Right? <clears throat> One of the commentaries I was reading said this, some commentaries suggest Uriah suspected what had been happening at the place. Uriah must have thought it extraordinarily odd that David summoned him back from the front for three days with nothing more to talk about than the state of the battle. Information that could have been relayed to David by any number of messengers. And Uriah may have deliberately rebuked David's unkingly behavior. More than that, Uriah ended the whole discussion with an oath on David's life, even if it cost David's life, he would not do what David encouraged him to do. Even if this costs you your life and your soul, I'm not going to do it. That's pretty intense. That's very intense. Well, so it seems that righteous Uriah is not going to go down to his home. And yet David gets even gnarlier, right? David's next attempt is, well, I'll just get him drunk, and then he'll go down to his home and lie with his wife. I'll get this man drunk. Again, though, that doesn't work. He succeeds in getting him drunk, but he still does not go home to his wife. And so then we come to David's third attempt, and this is perhaps the, the most despicable. And really what I want you to feel as we go through this passage is the terrible sinfulness of King David. Terrible sinfulness. This is one of the most disturbing um, acts of all the kings of Israel, and there were terrible kings of Israel. Right? Manasseh filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood, but David was an adulterous murderer. So this is David's third attempt. He's going to get Uriah killed. Note, Uriah um, is given a letter, and so Uriah is carrying his own death sentence back to the front lines which is a really stupid thing for David to do. One, because we know how easy it is to glance at messages that are given to us to relay to other people. Um, David is insanely sinful at this point. He is, not, he's, he is doing, he is doing um, things that, that don't add up, that don't make sense, that 
uh, could reveal his whole situation. But sin is, sin, sin is insanity. And certainly sin that is, is built upon lies is utter insanity. It causes us to go down uh, the, a wormhole, right, to further insanity. So Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. And there's absolutely no way that we can construe this command as a good command, right? Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle. Well, if it was just that, then we would say Uriah's the man. He wants his best man up in the best part of the battle, doing battle. But then it says, and withdraw from him. Withdraw from him. so that he may be struck down and die. There it's explicit. And so, so it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there, would be, there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of, the, some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab carries out this command. Joab obeys David's command, but should not have. Another command of the kings that should have been disobeyed. This is clearly an attempt to assassinate one of the men of the army. But that is precisely why David asked Joab. Right? A man who had taken... Matters into his own hands previously. He had taken his, you know, he had resolved uh, something uh, against the law of the Lord before. And so, so this is precisely what David, this is precisely the kind of man that David has to rely upon now, a Joab. A man who is going to be blindly loyal to his earthly king and disregard his heavenly king. I mean, think about this. If, if, Joab had, um, if Joab had followed David's command to the letter, even the soldiers around David would have known about the plan, that the plan was for Uriah to die. So, I mean, if David, and, but, but Joab doesn't do that. Joab just finds a place where it's fierce and puts him there and they fight, and some of them die, and, and Uriah dies too and fulfills that law. But, I mean, just think about the foolishness of David's commands. So Joab then sends messengers back to David. Some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. That's what happened. Now, he also says, if David gets mad, when you're telling him about all that's been happening, if David gets mad... All you have to say is this, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so David responds to messengers with words of consolation for Joab. Now this is, this is the bottom point, I think. This is the twistedness of sin. This is after you've gone down the rabbit hole for quite a bit in trying to uh, cover in trying to make yourself look good and to make yourself look like you haven't sinned. 
David sends this consolation to Joab and says, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. What's up with that statement? What is wrong with that statement by David? The sword devours one as well as another. It's, yeah, it's fatalistic to the core. It has, it has no view. I mean, David has fallen so far that, that he is not even thinking of the Lord's ways. He, he does not have the sovereign God and his plans in mind. He's, he's saying this expression that he heard from a soothsayer along the road. Whatever. It's fatalistic. Yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah, he's he's mitigating himself, and and it's self-justifying words, right? Well, Uriah, you know, the sword battle warfare—it's a—it's a terrible business, isn't it? Warfare is is ugly, and people die. Yeah, exactly. He's he's trying to justify what he's doing. Um, and then and, and then he um, says, "Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it." So double down, take the city. Now that we've got this business settled, now um, do what you were sent there to do, which is to take the city. Now Bathsheba hears and she mourns. We talked about Bathsheba last time in the first part of 11. I think she bears some responsibility in this, though David's responsible ultimately for these sins. Um, she, she had a responsibility to resist his entreaties and insist, resist him as uh, Joseph resisted Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. And yet, here she is, having lost her husband. She hears of it, and she mourns for her husband. And then David sins again. Don't think that there's any, anything sympathetic here. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, another wife. David was a man who had many wives. David was a man who, by the law of God should have had one wife, right? He should have had one wife, but he multiplied wives around him. And he takes Bathsheba, and she gives birth to a son. And you think at the end of this, all's well that ends well, unless you... um, And that's what David was probably thinking at this point, all's well that ends well. But note that last sentence of this section... But the Lord, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so some, some applications from this passage, as after we've walked through it now. Lies, lies birth lies. If you're a liar, get used to lying. 
Your lies are going to require more lies. Your lies are going to require more lies, and then those lies are going to require more lies after them. And trust me, you will not be able to stay ahead of your lying. You will create a world in which you cannot exist and stay ahead of your lies. Lie once and you'll have to lie again and again to cover it up unless you simply repent of the first lie. Right? Lies can become a labyrinth that will form you and you will not be able to stay ahead of them. We see that in David. David is uh, lying to himself. He's lying to others. He's enacting wicked deeds. And he is trying to stay ahead of this and thinks he's done a good job. Um, Another application. Sinners are not only immoral but stupid. Right? Sin is stupid. This whole situation is, I mean, it's evil. It's terrible. It's one of the worst examples of sin in all of Scripture, but it's stupid. Look what King David has done. David, who is a man after God's own heart, David, who had had glorious victories, David, who had stopped short of killing Saul when he had multiple opportunities and even repented of having torn off a part of of Saul's robe, is now in a situation where he's committed adultery and murder and won't repent, won't confess, won't give it up. And so if a leader wants to retain his, his ability to lead, he should look to his integrity. And David has lost his integrity now. Um, a, a point in the case of this, David being soothed by news of another's death when hearing of... <laughs> when... when We see how twisted it is when Joab recommends that if David flies into a a rage about all these other deaths, tell him about another death and he'll calm down. That's how crazy this is. If he gets enraged that we put men up in the fiercest battle, just tell him that Uriah died and he'll be fine. That's how far he's fallen. If you pursue your sin, you will justify with the stupidest reasons. You know, getting high keeps me from so many other sins. I just need to get high. It keeps me from being angry at my children. But getting high is your sin. Right? That's sin. Um, You know... Another mundane example of that, pastors are bookish, right? They need to stay, uh, they need to study. They need to study. They need to sit in their office and study. And and some refuse to love their flock and uh, as proven by their bookishness, right? I mean, we can just, and and so a pastor can stay in his office for seven days a week 
and not feel any compunction to actually know his sheep and get out and shepherd the sheep. Right? We can self-justify in the, the, the strangest ways. Pastor's got to study becomes a reason to neglect the sheep. Um, we could all add, prob- we're all masters at this, right? We're all masters at coming up with justifications for our sin. Uh, or justifications to give in to temptation, right? Do you have that inner dialogue going on when you face temptation and you start reasoning with yourself why you should give in to sin? Well, David is in the throes of that and his, his reason and uh, has his reason and his godly reason as taught to him through the word has been stifled. Another application, sin hardens and sears our conscience. You know what it means to sear your conscience. What's a conscience? Esther, what's your conscience? Part of you that tells you what's right and what's wrong. It's good, right? And what does it mean if that conscience is seared? It's burned up. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, right? It stops telling you what's good and what's evil, and sin hardens, right? And begins to sear the conscience. It begins to dull our sensitivity to right and wrong. And David's this statement, the sword devours one as well as another, proves that David's conscience is now dead. It's dead. His conscience is dead. It's a ter- this is a terrible conclusion that he comes to. But his sin has made him accept it, embracing murder, lies, and deceit. His conscience has been seared. But the goal of our instruction, the Apostle Paul writes, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Protect your conscience. If you give yourself to sin, your conscience will continually die. It will progressively die. And pretty soon you will have no discernment between good and evil. You will have no conscience pushing you away from sin and toward what is right. Consciences are to be protected keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. That we're called to keep faith in a good conscience. And if we don't, look at the results. We suffer shipwreck in regard to our faith. So protect your conscience. How do you protect your conscience? How can you keep your conscience from being seared and becoming... uh, And, and becoming dead. How do you keep it supple? Study the Word of God. Repent. Repent of your sin. Confess it. Right? Confess it to somebody other than somebody you always confess your sin to. Confess it to somebody who actually has authority over you. Somebody where it's going to be a little painful to confess it. 
that will really protect your conscience, right? Self-examination. Stop and examine yourself and find where you need to repent. It may not be where you initially thought you needed to repent, right? Get to the root of your sin. And so um, the means of that, getting to the root of your sin and self-examination is sitting under the preaching of the Word, studying the Word of God privately, and, and asking God to reveal Himself and His will to you. Another application, David should be dying for the people, not the people for David's sin. David is anti-Christ right now. He is making people die for him rather than himself dying so that others might live. David is being an antichrist by killing Uriah. Fifth, it's amazing how we are so uh, dominated by ambition that we not only want to be valued by appearing virtuous, but also like to be publicly honored. Then when we bring dishonor and shame upon ourselves by our own misbehavior, we still want to cover it up just as if we were fighting against God himself. This is revoice. Right? Their ambition has caused them to recast their sin as virtue. That's one of the things that we do. We like to recast our sins as virtue. My anger is zeal. Right? My anger is proof that I care. I mean, how many times have you said that to yourself? I am zealous for holiness in my household as you mock and belittle your children when you discipline them. Right? But Revoice does this. They've taken their, their shame and, and recast that as a virtue. Uh, we fight to exempt ourselves from shame before men, don't we? We fight to exempt ourselves from shame. Another application from this. Heed God's warnings. Heed God's warnings. Does God warn you? I mean, one, the Holy Spirit working in your conscience should be warning you continually. Right? But where else is He warning you? He's warning you now. Right? Those who are not here tonight are not being warned. Okay? But you're here tonight and God is warning you. So heed God's warning. Calvin said David should have been again all the more confused when he saw that all the the subterfuges which he invented in his head got him nowhere. It should have moved him to pray to God and to be displeased with himself over his sins. All these lies, all these things that he did to try and cover up got him nowhere. I mean, he was going to have to keep this under wraps. The king. He should have heeded God's warnings. He should have heeded, he should have seen in Uriah's righteousness a rebuke from God. This man won't go down and sleep with his wife 
And it's wicked that I requested that. That was a warning from God that, that David just said, ignored. Remember what David said to Joab when Joab committed murder. Remember what David said to Joab? Kind of poignant now that we see David working with Joab and committing murder. Here are David's words to Joab. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or one who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's how David responded to Joab's wickedness with that intense rebuke. What if David had just, what if Joab had just reminded David of that when he got the message? Remember what you said to me? When I did what you did? Or what you want to do? Another application. When he said the sword consumes this one as well as that one, he was speaking of fortune like an unbeliever who has never heard God mentioned. Just speaking of fortune. His, he now has a distorted view of, of, sin has distorted his view of God and God's will and God's sovereign power. And then finally, we, we know what comes next. And we thank God for it, and we see God's mercy in what comes next in chapter 12. First of all, the beauty of the rebuke of Nathan the prophet. And secondly, in David's repentance. But we also see that his sin has lingering consequences, right? His repentance does not mitigate the the discipline of the Lord. Uh, His... David's kingdom is a mess from here out because God is disciplining him. Right? Warfare with his own children. A death of a child. Uh, We'll get there. But Nathan's rebuke of David um, is very intense about what's going to happen to David, though he said this. So, any other... Any other applications that you think of in this passage? There's so much that we could pull out of this, but what have I missed? Yeah, Naomi. God. That's right. That's right. That's that's our only hope, right? Sure. Uh, because there's, there's nothing more insidious than the sexual 
That's right. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, from, he, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And there, you know, the Sermon on the Mount comes to mind, and, and Jesus saying, if you've looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And clearly, that the actions followed from this, he had conceived this in his heart and was pursuing it. And the destruction, the fallout from those 20 minutes it's terrible it's terrible Chuck Do you think Uriah knew what was going on? I don't think he knew. He may, even if he didn't know everything, he, got, he knew David's command in that moment was appropriate because as, as Uriah knew his, he knew his fellow soldiers back dying for Israel that day. Yeah. What he was called to. Right. Yeah, I get the sense that Uriah knew because he resisted so adamantly and because he resisted even when he became drunk. He had enough clarity of mind to know that this, that he could not see his wife, that he was not going to cover up the sin, sin of the king. And so, it, and and because of what he says <laughs> about taking an oath on the life of, of David, by your life and the life of your soul, I'm not going to do this thing. It's pretty intense. That's right. Except for the one command that's given that would have been okay, go home and turn off your wife. And, and, you know, there's, there's reasons or not to do it, but in and of itself, it's not sin to go home. And that's the one command that's not obeyed. And his wife that's true. That, and gone and so many other opportunities to disobey his commands, which would have brought to light his sin and been helpful to him. But yeah, yeah, but the one, that's the one that's resisted. I mean, it does show you about the character of Uriah, right? It seems that this converted Gentile really feared God. If he was going to resist the king, his commander-in-chief that way. Anything else come to mind? Well, I, yeah, I think that if we wanted to get back to the root of the sin, it would be David's lust that led him to have multiple wives. 
right? Bathsheba was just another opportunity for him to have another wife. And he went to despicable lengths to make that happen. Uh, should, should Bathsheba have resisted him in becoming the wife of the king? Yes, of course, she should have. Yeah, we don't, we don't know for sure. All we have is Bathsheba's actions from this point too, and she's very zealous for Solomon and his reputation and him leading the kingdom. She has great ambition for her son. And I think that means something about, I think that shows us something about the character of Bathsheba. Or at the very least that she was going to make something of this terrible situation. Anything else? These are helpful. Yeah. I think this is a great example of effeminacy in Scripture. He's supposed to be engaged and probably not on the front line, probably not even on the scene of the battle, but engaged, knowing what's going on in the battle, listening to messengers, sending messengers, learning of the of the um, strategy that's going on and, and who's where and what's going on. He should have had intimate knowledge, and yet he's gazing at women from the roof. I mean, it's effeminacy to the core. It's him not being a man. It's, it's you know, it's playing video games until you're 35 years old in the basement of your parents' house. <laughs> David is playing video games in the basement of parents' house at this point. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. Let's, um, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God, that Though our sins are as scarlet, you wash us white as snow in the blood of your Son. We thank you for the faith of David. And though he was a terrible sinner, though he brought affliction upon his household and upon Israel, Father, we, we trust that he is one of your children and a saint cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, it gives us hope. It gives us courage. It gives us strength. And, Lord, we pray that we would have a sense of this 
this history that we would carry it around with us and when temptation comes upon us I pray that we would remember the devastation that sin brings and the devastation most of all that sin brought upon your own son is his the, the, the holocaust that happened upon the cross in Christ. Father, we praise you. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that you have rescued us, that you have, uh, you have sanctified and will glorify your children who have been bought by the blood of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.